From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Today we remember Tyree Nichols, the life he lived and the man he was before his fatal run-in with Memphis police. Companies like Live Nation and Google are accused of being monopolies. What can the government do about it? Plus, R&B singer Vito tells us why he likes to make music for the bedroom, if you know what I mean. I think that um, that's how we all got here. I think it's a, you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a soul tie, of course. It's Sunday, January 29th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. In Memphis, there have been more protests following the city's release of body cam video of the police attack on black motorist Tyree Nichols. NPR's Debbie Elliott has the latest. Protesters took to the streets of Memphis as residents come to terms with what they witnessed on the video. Five former officers are charged with second-degree murder and other crimes, but the video shows other officers on the scene. Memphis City Councilman J.B. Smiley Jr. says they should also be held to account. We demand that each and every officer, every sheriff department officer, every EMT involved be immediately terminated. Smiley says the city council is ready to force changes in the police department. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Memphis. The Memphis Police Department is disbanding a specialized police unit that included the five officers who've been charged in the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols. The department issued a statement this weekend saying it is permanently deactivating the Scorpion unit which was charged with concentrating on crime hotspots. In Baltimore, Police Commissioner Michael Harrison is urging any witnesses to last night's mass shooting to come forward. We need people right now to come forward and help us, help us help you. Help us help you. Baltimore police looking for suspects in last night's shooting that left one person dead and injured four others, including a woman in a car with two children. The woman and a two-year-old boy were shot a six-year-old was critically injured when the car crashed. A shooting took place at a busy intersection in West Baltimore. The NAACP says it's exploring ways to litigate against Florida's rejection of a new advanced placement course on African-American history. Joe Burns of member station WMFE in Orlando reports. Earlier this month, Florida rejected a high school advanced placement course on African-American history, calling it unlawful and lacking educational value. NAACP Chairman Leon Russell rejects that move. We will not allow public officials to rip our part of American history out of textbooks, out of the classroom, and out of the mouths of teachers. He says the NAACP will join a legal fight against it. It's already challenging the Individual Freedom Act signed by the governor last year that limits classroom discussion on racism and privilege. For NPR News, I'm Joe Burns in Orlando. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Egypt today at the start of a three-day visit. He arrived in Cairo as violence flares between Israelis and Palestinians. A Palestinian gunman killed seven people outside a synagogue in Jerusalem on Friday. The shooting followed a deadly Israeli raid in the West Bank. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Woburn teachers will negotiate with school district and city officials this morning in hopes of reaching a contract agreement. If they cannot hammer out an agreement today, then the Woburn Teachers Association says the educators will go on strike tomorrow. The union says talks with the city are stalled over compensation disagreements. School and city officials say good faith bargaining has gone on for over a year. A bystander has died after a shooting at the Holyoke Mall in western Massachusetts. The Hamden District Attorney's Office says shots were fired at the mall around 7 p.m. yesterday. Officials say the confrontation took place between two people who knew each other and the man who died was not involved. The investigation continues. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says this week she plans to file a petition to end urban renewal in Boston. The decades-old policy allows the city to seize so-called blighted property by eminent domain. The policy led to the demolition of the West End, Scully Square, and parts of the South End in Roxbury in the 1950s and 60s. Wu made the announcement during her State of the City address last week. Former President Trump is using a New Hampshire appearance this weekend to help kick off his 2024 campaign for the White House. We're starting. We're starting right here as a candidate for president. Speaking at the New Hampshire GOP's annual meeting in Salem yesterday, Trump criticized the Democratic Party for proposing to make South Carolina the first primary state, taking that distinction away from New Hampshire. Trump claimed President Biden pushed for the change because Biden did poorly in the last New Hampshire primary. Humiliating fifth-place defeat, and now he's taking a revenge on the voters of your state. Trump lost in New Hampshire in the 2016 and 2020 elections. It is 37 degrees in Boston with clouds today and highs in the low 50s. Lows overnight dropping to the upper 30s. And then a partly sunny Monday, tomorrow's highs in the mid 40s. Tuesday should be partly sunny with highs in the mid 30s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for gathering with us today. The city of Memphis and indeed much of the nation is reeling from the video showing the horrific and fatal beating of Tyree Nichols. The 29-year-old can be seen pleading with the officers saying he was just trying to go home. Those officers were part of the Scorpion unit intended to tackle rising crime in the community. That unit has permanently deactivated, but they weren't the only ones on the scene. Two members of the fire department and two sheriff's deputies have been removed from duty and are under investigation in connection with the incident. Still, the brutality of this incident has Americans yet again asking questions that have become all too familiar. Why did another black man die at the hands of the police? Why did they unleash such violence upon an unarmed person? And when will this stop? But right now, we'd like to turn to a remembrance of Tyree Nichols, the very real person at the tragic heart of this story. 
And before the world saw traumatic images of his deadly encounter with the Memphis police, there were other videos and images Nichols shared online, happier ones, where he shared his teenage passion for skateboarding in his hometown of Sacramento. His childhood friend told NPR's Juliana Kim that's how Nichols would have liked to be remembered. Tyree Nichols is 17 years old in this video. The sun is bright orange as he skates up and down a mini ramp. His childhood friend Austin Roberts says that's how Nichols spent most of his time as a teenager. He never wanted to quit. And I mean, if you gave that guy a headlamp and it got too dark for him to land a trick, he would still try to do it. The two met at a skateboard park in Sacramento when they were in high school. Every day for almost eight years, the two would meet up with their group of friends at Regency Park and practice skateboard tricks until it got dark. What he remembers most about Nichols is his positivity. It didn't matter like what was going on in his life, if whether it was bad or good, um, he would still be the same person. Robert can't recall a time when Nichols got mad or was in trouble. That's why he was shocked to hear that his friend was pulled over and brutalized by police in Memphis earlier this month. Nichols died in the hospital three days later. He was 29 years old. Five police officers have since been fired and charged with his murder. Over the past few weeks, people across the country braced themselves for footage from the night Nichols was beaten. Officials who watched the videos described them as heinous and inhumane. That's when Roberts' old home videos resurfaced. Attorney Ben Crump, who's representing Nichols' family, shared one of Roberts' videos on social media, saying this is who Tyree Nichols was, a talented and dedicated skateboarder. Nichols was fascinated with skateboarding for a while before he built up the courage to ride one, according to Robert. The story he told me is that he saw people, you know, skating, and he always thought, that that was something that he could never do because it looked like it was so hard. Robert says one day Nichols tried it out and he became committed to the sport from that day forward. And he was also dedicated to everyone else's success at the skateboard rink. He would set his board down, grab the camera, and he would film for hours and just wait for you to land this trick. And he would keep you in positive vibes even if you're getting frustrated because he couldn't land it. That's what Robert hopes people will remember about Nichols. I want him to be remembered as you know, the kid that was smiling in the, an escape video and not, not the kid that was, you know, frightened for his life. This past Friday, the Sacramento skateboard community held a candlelight vigil at Nichols' childhood park, and his mother is raising money for a memorial skate park in his honor. Juliana Kim, NPR News. President Biden yesterday issued a statement of condolence to the family of Tyree Nichols, as well as the Memphis community. He talked about delivering change and accountability, as well as the need to, quote, advance meaningful reforms. But what exactly does that mean? And is it an actual deliverable at this point? We're joined now by NPR national political correspondent Mara Lyason. Good morning, Mara. Good morning, Aisha. So, you know, here we are again, um, another horrific, senseless killing at the hands of the police. There's talk of reform. Um, but are there even bills being pushed through Congress for the president to potentially sign? 
Well, the short answer to that question is no. And remember, after the last horrific videotaped killing of a black man at the hands of the police, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act was not passed. It passed the Democratic House. It was blocked in the Senate by Republicans. It would have, at the federal level, banned chokeholds and made federal funding for state and local law enforcement conditional on those agencies banning those practices. It would have given more money to police departments for training would do the opposite of defunding the police, which is something that Joe Biden is against, uh, but it would have improved community mental health outreach, and uh, it didn't go anywhere. Uh, okay, so after that last major effort, you know, we heard uh, on this from the House Democrats uh, was back in 2021. Is there anything new on the horizon? Well, there's nothing new on the horizon in Congress, but after every one of these incidents, there's always pressure to do something. It's possible that Joe Biden could issue some executive orders, but it's going to be up to states and municipalities to do something. And you could argue that Memphis actually did something. They fired the police officers within two weeks. They charged them. They released the video very quickly. That is different than the behavior of other police departments in the past after incidences like this. Um, but it's also true that representation alone does not stop these things from happening. Memphis has a black female police chief. 58% of the police officers in Memphis are black and a 65% uh, black population city. So this is a much bigger problem. It's about the culture of policing and it's about all the things that, that they're kind of, they're, they're not trained in the official training sessions, but that's it's a culture that's going to be harder to change. Mm -hmm. in, in, in the past week, you know, there have been a series of mass shootings in California, um, the Monterey Park uh, Lunar New Year shooting that left 11 dead, shooting at Half Moon Bay that left seven dead. There was another one Saturday morning in Los Angeles where at least three people were killed. Is there any appetite for gun control legislation at this point? And we have about a minute left. Yeah. Well, gun control is a different issue, but unfortunately, the answer is the same. There's very little appetite in Congress for it because there was a gun safety measure passed in the last Congress. It was actually the strongest gun safety measure in the last 30 years. It was a modest reform, but it was still a huge lift for Congress. Now, with a Republican majority in the House and a Democratic majority in the Senate, it's hard to see how you could get any more gun safety legislation through Congress in a bipartisan way. The other problem is that even in states with strict gun laws like California, there's so many guns out there. It's so easy to get semi-automatic weapons, which kill large numbers of people in a very short period of time, like in Monterey. This is a country awash in guns, something like 125 firearms per 100 residents. So it's hard to control access to them or even to enforce the laws that are meant to prevent mass shootings. That's NPR national political correspondent Mara Eliason. Thank you, Mara. Thank you. Some 60 Ukrainian dancers are arriving in Washington, D.C. today. They are refugees who fled the country after the Russian invasion. The dancers, who come from different cities and regions in Ukraine, ended up in The Hague in the Netherlands. There, there they formed a new company, the United Ukrainian Ballet. As NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports, the company performed Zizel at the Kennedy Center starting this week. 
At first, almost all of the dancers who made it to the Netherlands were female. Most Ukrainian men are not allowed to leave the country. But with the formation of the United Ukrainian Ballet, the government made an exception, says choreographer Alexei Radmansky. Ukrainian Ministry of Culture thought of it important initiative, so they, they gave it permission to the men. Dancer Alexei Kineskov was one of them. I'm not a soldier or warrior. I don't know anything about these things, but I can dance. I hope uh, it will be more useful for support Ukraine. Like all of the other dancers in the company, Konexkov left family and friends behind. My mom stay in uh, Donetsk region. It's like uh, the, the most dangerous place now, but she uh, wants to stay at home. She doesn't want to go from there. In the morning, we're all dreading the news from Ukraine because you just learn where and how many people were killed by Russians. But Radmansky says the emotions are not getting in the way of the work. Because, you know, ballet dancers are very disciplined and we just work. It helps to work, to concentrate on something else. And we also feel that we are doing it for Ukraine. Last year, the United Ukrainian Ballet performed Giselle in London with sets and costumes donated by the Birmingham Royal Ballet. Dancer Vladislava Inatenko hopes this year's trip to the Kennedy Center will remind U.S. audiences the war is still going on. It's really good when people are asking how, how is it in Ukraine and how they can help us. United Ukrainian Ballet is made up of dancers from across the country, different theaters, different cities and regions. Alexei Konexkov says it shows, quote, the union of our country. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918 and ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday, taking a look at the major tech layoffs. Also, you'll hear about sacred forests in Liberia. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by The Cabot in Beverly with the Amplifying Voices Film Festival, celebrating diverse artwork and stories, February 3rd and 4th, thecabot.org. And Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The Memphis Police Department is disbanding a specialized police unit that included the five officers who've been charged in the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols. The department issued a statement this weekend saying it's permanently deactivating the Scorpion unit, 
which was charged with concentrating on crime hotspots. Minnesota lawmakers have passed a bill to protect abortion rights. After hours of debate, the state Senate gave the bill final passage this weekend. It now goes to the governor's desk. And the winners of today's NFL games will play in the Super Bowl in two weeks. The Philadelphia Eagles host the San Francisco 49ers for the NFC title, and then Kansas City and Cincinnati decide the AFC championship. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, featuring wines from around the world with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet, available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org radio. And from ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. A not-so-sexy legal topic was very, very hot in Washington last week. Antitrust. And two companies were in the spotlight. The U.S. Justice Department and eight states are suing Google, saying that the company is trying to neutralize or eliminate competition. And Ticketmaster was grilled by senators last week about its crash during ticket sales for Taylor Swift's tour. They say the company is too dominant in its market. Michael Carrier is a professor at Rutgers School of Law and an antitrust expert. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's start with Taylor Swift and the Ticketmaster fiasco as a case study. Walk us through what the senators are trying to achieve. So Ticketmaster merged with Live Nation in 2010. At the time, some people were really worried because Ticketmaster has control of the ticketing arm of concerts and Live Nation Entertainment was in charge of promotion and artists. They have control over the primary ticketing, the secondary ticketing. Now, because of the merger, the artists, the venues, they have control over everything. And so in antitrust law, to be found guilty of monopolization, there need to be a couple things. One is you have to be really big and have monopoly power. And the second is you have to do something bad. You have to have some sort of exclusionary conduct. So it's not a violation of antitrust law just for being really big. The question is, have you done something bad? Is it difficult then though for the government to take on these companies, like kind of a David and Goliath situation because these companies, they're really big, they're really influential. And I assume they got bucket loads of money and the government you know, has a lot of power, but does it have the ability to take on these companies? You're absolutely right that the government has very finite resources compared to these really big companies. When the companies are faced with an antitrust violation, that could change their way of doing business. So you might bet that there is no bottom to how much they will spend in terms of high-priced lawyers to make sure that they fight the government for years. These antitrust cases can go on for at least five years, maybe even seven or eight. 
And on the other hand, the government does not have as many attorneys. They can't bring that many big cases at once. And so you could think of it as David v. Goliath. When was the last time that the government actually succeeded in breaking up a company? It was AT&T. There was control over the entire market, the local market, the long distance market, and there really was no choice for consumers. And so the court broke them up. The, the Department of Justice brought that case and the court broke them up. The thought then was that there really was no alternative to the phone system. And so AT&T was not providing competition. Is the real power of the government blocking mega mergers or do they have teeth when a company is already really big and expansive to do something to rein them in? So there, there could be a middle ground. The, the middle ground could be to divide up the company into smaller pieces, or for example, to take one part of it and take it off the table. So look at the pharmaceutical industry. Oftentimes you have mergers between large pharmaceutical companies and the government doesn't try to block the entire merger. It just requires what's called divestiture of overlapping product lines. So let's say that two drug companies each have a treatment for, say, headaches. The combined company wouldn't be allowed to keep both of those treatments for headaches because that would give them too much power. So they would need to divest one of those to a third party. The hope there is that there would be competition when the third party now is developing the headache medicine. And so why is this important to focus on this, to have the government looking into this? I mean, some people may go, well, I mean, it's Ticketmaster. It's even with Google, it works fine. Why, why do we care about this? We care about this because free markets are at the heart of our economy, of our society. And when companies don't play by the rules, they make it harder for competitors and they make it harder for consumers. Consumers have to pay higher prices than they otherwise would. The quality suffers, the innovation suffers. That is something that antitrust doesn't stand for. And the application of antitrust promises to improve consumers' lives. So what needs to happen so that you don't have companies growing and becoming so dominant as we seem to see happen pretty often these days? Well, the government needs to keep bringing cases. Private parties need to keep bringing cases too. And maybe the courts could be a little more accommodating. Over the last 50 years or so, the courts have made it really difficult to win antitrust cases. And so, for example, you look at what the courts have done, what the government hasn't done in the airline industry, we now are paying a lot more money than we used to with quality that doesn't seem to be as good. So we still need a robust enforcement regime and courts that are willing to recognize anti-competitive behavior and do something about it. That is Michael Carrier, a law professor at Rutgers University. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. The Biden administration is trying to move Americans away from gas-powered cars, but replacing every internal combustion engine with a battery brings its own environmental cost. A new report outlines some possible solutions. Thea Rio Francos is a political science professor at Providence College and lead author of the report, Achieving Zero Emissions with More Mobility and Less Mining. She joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us more about 
these electric batteries. Like they do produce lower emissions to power a vehicle, but there is an environmental impact to producing the actual batteries, right? Right. So we have these supply chains around the world that are involved in order to produce the materials for our batteries. And batteries require lots of different mined materials. We focus on lithium. And when we look at the impacts of that mining, we see a lot of concerning effects, right? We see impacts on water systems where there's water use by lithium mining or contamination of water. We see impacts on biodiversity. We also see concerning social impacts such as indigenous peoples in Latin America that haven't been fully consulted before these large-scale mining projects uh, were built and started to affect their territory as well as culturally sensitive sites. This is not just an issue for the rest of the world, right? Impacts that are far away beyond our borders. The Biden administration has a major goal of increasing mining for so-called critical minerals here in the United States. And so how much increased lithium demand could we see by 2050? If today's demand for electric vehicles, if we project that outward to 2050, for just the U.S. EV market alone, not taking into account any other country in the world, just the U.S. EV market alone would need triple the amount of lithium currently produced for the entire global market. And that means a lot more individual lithium mines, each of them carrying their own impacts in environmental and social terms. Well, I have to ask you then, because I'm sure some listeners will be thinking this, is, okay, so you were told gas-powered cars, they're bad. Now we're being told electric cars, well, they got their issues. It seems like you're darned if you do, you're darned if you don't. How do we get around? I think that we need to think more expansively about mobility. Do we kind of stay with the status quo or do we take this opportunity to say, yes, we absolutely need EVs, right? But we can also expand other transportation options, buses, light rail, commuter rail, streetcars, cycling, walking. Even when I was covering, you know, energy for a long time, the issues with getting people to get electric vehicles, they said, was that Americans want to feel like they can jump in their car and they can drive across the country if they need to. How do you change that mindset to people who, like, just want to be able to, I want to have my own vehicle, I want to go where I want to go? I think that there are different solutions depending on what the main issue we want to address is, right? We could stay with as many cars as we have, right? With the same car dependency, the same, that's how we get around. But we just get off of this trend of the huge electric SUVs. The U.S. like battery size for our EVs is double what it was 10 years ago. And that requires more lithium. More lithium. Right. So if we can get to even where we were a few years ago in battery size, we would be on a better track. We also can get around in these other ways, though. Right. In the year 2050, if we can increase other mobility options, build out more bus lanes, right, get folks into safe walking and cycling. Right. If we can increase recycling of batteries and recover those materials we can see 92% less lithium required in our best case scenario, the future I just laid out, versus the worst case. And so there's a lot to be gained by taking this moment of addressing the climate crisis to think more holistically about the design of our transportation sector and have the goal of maximum mobility 
for all and the goal of also addressing the harms of mining before they get to even more concerning levels. That's Thea Rio Francos, lead author of the new report, Achieving Zero Emissions with More Mobility and Less Mining, from the Climate and Community Project and the University of California, Davis. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Japanese cooking ranges from simple, uncomplicated meals to incredibly elaborate, stylized cuisine. From Tokyo, NPR's Anthony Kuhn has the story of a restaurateur who has turned one of Japan's most humble home-style foods into a big attraction. Next to some streetcar tracks, you can often see diners lining up for hours down the street. Their objective? To get one of nine seats at Onigiri Bongo, which has been serving rice balls or onigiri for some six decades. The homely onigiri is often made at home. It's often packed in school lunches or taken on picnics. Of course, you can always grab a packaged onigiri in just about any convenience store in Japan. But onigiri Bongo's rice balls are on another gourmet level. Yumiko Ukon is the eatery's wiry and energetic owner. She remembers the onigiri she ate as a child. Usually, my mother used to make them. If they were wrapped with seaweed, they were a treat. It was part of our culture not to buy them, but to make them at home. Ukon says she left her hometown in Niigata Prefecture and came to Tokyo at around age 20. I called myself a food refugee. I couldn't find food I liked. But a friend introduced me to a delicious rice ball restaurant, and it was love at first sight. Ukon was not destined to be just another customer. She married the restaurant's then-owner, Tasku Ukon, who was 27 years her senior. She later became the eatery's owner after her husband passed away in 2012. Ukon's hands flit over the rice balls, stuffing them with filling, gently squeezing them, and wrapping them with seaweed. Customers can choose from more than 50 fillings, from standards such as salmon flakes and pickled plums to non-traditional items such as pork and kimchi or bacon and cheese. The onigiri are made to order and served warm and fluffy with the rice slightly al dente. They're hefty, unpretentious, and straight-up scrumptious. Ukon says onigiri are special because they connect people. It's not about the technique. It's about how much feeling you can put into each onigiri. That's why I'll never forget my mother's onigiri for the rest of my life. At 11.30 a.m., the restaurant opens, the music comes on, and the customers pack in. After more than four decades in the business, Yumiko Ukon is still serving up onigiri with vigor and passion. She's clear about what keeps her going. I thought about retiring at 70, but I'm still in good health, and I want to see the smiling faces of the people eating the rice balls. The name Onigiri Bongo likens the restaurant's reputation to the sound of the drum, resonating far and wide, beckoning to those who hear it. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Tokyo.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The storms that hit California earlier this month destroyed neighborhoods and business districts. The deluge sent thousands fleeing from their houses, and not just people. From member station KCRW, Matt Gillum reports that some displaced animals are still trying to find their way home. As a parade of atmospheric rivers pummeled Oakview, California, north of Los Angeles, the creek behind Rancho Grande Villa finally gave and became a river. The waters inundated the ranch, threatening the lives of its horses. Yeah, I was there. We evacuated not only our six horses, but then we came back and helped the owner evacuate her seven horses. That's Lynn Dorgan, the clinical director of Reigns of Hope, a nonprofit that uses horses to help veterans, at-risk youth, and others process trauma in outdoor therapy sessions. As the pounding rain kept coming, she and a handful of volunteers were able to corral the horses and load them up. We were amazingly able to get our trailer out. Two other trailers got stuck on the property, but we were able to get our trailer out. And then we were able to get this little van out, which was a miracle. Among the equine evacuees who made it out was Hope. Hope is a miniature horse. She was a rescue. And she is kind of a little bit of our, or she is the ambassador to Reigns of Hope. Her and Samantha Balsazak is with the group. She beams as she talks about the horse, who's smaller than a Great Dane. As she and Little Hope take in the view of the mud-caked ranch that once hosted the therapy sessions, there's no anguish. Balsazak is... Grateful every moment the team got our horses out of there with the volunteers. That's really still where I'm at. There are four-legged therapists. Everything else can be replaced, truly. Everything else can be replaced. Our horses could not have been. I hope you won't take offense. We haven't cleaned the floor since our last little operation. Just up the coast from Oakview, no-nonsense Kathy O'Connor leads the Santa Barbara equine evacuation team. When disaster strikes the seaside county, her group turns the local fairgrounds, which have a host of stables, into a large animal shelter. The rows of stalls feature top and bottom Dutch doors and can be ready to welcome evacuees in about 45 minutes. If we have a horse that's a little crazy, which sometimes they are, sometimes we have to close that top door because we have had horses jump over the doors. And sometimes we have to tranquilize an animal. While stressed out animals may get a sedative, it's more sugar pill for their owners. You know, this is a scary thing for people, particularly if they haven't been through it. So we try to calm them down, reassure them. County officials activated the equine evac team during the recent storms. A few years ago, during the Thomas fire, they oversaw a menagerie of more than 1,300, including woolly Scottish steer, zebras, and goats. As the frequency of powerful storms and devastating fires increases in California, so too does the need for everybody from a dog owner to a cattle titan to have an emergency plan for getting their animals out fast. While quick thinking and a bit of luck saved the therapy horses from the flood that tore up their ranch, Lynn Dorgan with Reigns of Hope says the herd being scattered is taking a toll. I have a home to go home to. The horses are couch surfing, and we all are so connected to our horses that they're struggling. We're all struggling together. The current path home is rough and more than a little wet, but the group is confident happy trails are ahead. For NPR News, I'm Matt Gillum in Oakview, California.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The gambling landscape in Massachusetts changes this week. Legal sports betting is allowed at the state's three casinos starting Tuesday at 10 a.m. Tomorrow, Massachusetts Gaming Commission commissioners and staffers will conduct final compliance testing during visits to Encore Boston Harbor, MGM Springfield, and Plain Ridge Park Casino. Contract negotiations are set to continue this morning in Woburn between the Woburn Teachers Association and city and school district officials. The union says educators will go on strike tomorrow if the two sides cannot reach an agreement today. Union members say talks are stalled over disagreements about compensation and class sizes. School and city officials say striking is illegal and disruptive. Lunar New Year celebrations continue today in Boston's Chinatown. Chinese and Korean communities will join to welcome the Year of the Rabbit at Pow Arts Center. Free family-friendly activities include calligraphy showcases, cookie stamping, and puppet making. And this morning, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and and Police Commissioner Michael Cox are attending the annual Lion Dance Parade in Chinatown. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, sourced in New England and focused on combining design with handmade craftsmanship. More about their sustainably crafted furniture at circlefurniture.com. Next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour, some of our politicians feel that America is in a crisis of wokeness. But what does woke even mean? I think that it's an unusable word, although it is used all the time, because it doesn't actually mean anything. A close look at the power of a word. That's next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines. Following the journey of Lewis and Clark while small ship cruising along the Columbia and Snake Rivers. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com slash NPR. And from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at Asylum.News. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. 200,000, that's how many tech jobs have been cut since the start of last year. It's one of Silicon Valley's biggest downturns ever. And most analysts say more pain for the industry is likely. NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen joins us to discuss what exactly is going on in the tech world and what it could mean for the rest of the economy. Good morning. Good morning. So what's driving these big cuts? So there's a few things going on here. First, let's step back and remember what happened for the tech industry during the pandemic, right? Everyone moved more of their lives online. We are all doing more online shopping. We are all working from home. Lots of people got into things like crypto. And it just made demand spike for tech companies. And to keep up, tech companies went on a hiring blitz. And I mean a real hiring blitz. Facebook parent company Meta and Amazon doubled their workforces. Microsoft and Google upped their staffers by 50%. It was really pretty wild to watch. But 
Now people are spending less money. Inflation is high. Of course, there are recession fears around the corner. And tech executives are saying, you know what? Maybe we just got a little too excited during the pandemic. And now we just have to let thousands of people go. These are some of the biggest and most profitable companies in the world, though. Is big tech really hurting? In relative terms, yes. Big tech stocks have taken a beating lately. They lost a lot of value. Shareholders certainly are not happy. So experts say these mass layoffs are sending a direct message to these investors. Here's Sam Abulal-Samet. He's an analyst with Guidehouse Insights. What they're saying is, look, we are being prudent. We want to get back on a growth path. And we don't want to continue to spend money needlessly. That said, when you're still as profitable as these companies are, saying that you're spending money needlessly you know, seems like a little bit of a specious argument. He doesn't seem completely convinced by this. Like, So w w what does he mean by that? Yeah, he basically means that these tech companies would be just fine had they not made these mass layoffs. Let's take Microsoft as an example. It laid off 10,000 of its workers last week, but in its last financial quarter, it made $16 billion in profit, right? And it also offered $69 billion in cash last year to try to acquire the video game company Activision Blizzard. So these companies are sitting on mountains of cash. They're reaping huge profits, but they do also have investors they have to appease. It's worth noting too that, you know, the downturn is not just affecting big tech. Many smaller tech companies like Yelp and Instacart had to lay off people and hundreds of tech startups and fintech, crypto, e-commerce and other industries that launched with loads of easy money saw that cash dry up and now they have to cut staff. Is there anything these tech layoffs can tell us about the economy overall and whether we really are heading into a recession? That is the question, Aisha. Everyone's wondering that now, but it's hard to answer. I can know a few things, though. Recent surveys show most laid-off tech workers find new tech jobs pretty quickly, so their prospects are looking okay. And the overhiring in big tech really was a tech-specific phenomenon. So analyst Abula Samad says we shouldn't read too much into that. I'm not sure that it necessarily means a whole lot for the mainstream economy. Broadly across the economy, we're still suffering from a lot of labor shortages. And he points out that macro factors like high inflation and a pullback in how companies are spending right now are factors that are affecting every corner of the economy. So, you know, while the shakeup in big tech right now might be dramatic, he says it doesn't necessarily mean it's what's coming for the rest of the economy. But um, I guess we'll just have to see. NPR's tech reporter, Bobby Allen. Bobby, thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha. There's a mix of emotions in the city of Memphis. Shock, sadness, anger after the release of footage showing the brutal attack of Tyree Nichols at the hands of five police officers. All this while the Nichols family must carry their private loss and grief in a very public way, ahead of their beloved son's funeral. NPR's Michelle Martin is in Memphis reporting on reaction there. She's speaking to leaders and community members exhausted by another killing of a black man in America and having to face the question, how to prevent this from happening again? That's later today on All Things Considered. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name.
In West Africa, communities have set aside forests and bodies of water to be protected at all costs. These are sacred spaces where rites of passage and spiritual ceremonies take place. But increasingly, the forests in countries like Liberia are under threat, as Ricky Shryock reports. A prayer to the fish. This local resident in Barconi, a town on the west coast of Liberia, sprinkles gin, a boiled egg, and rice into the murky blue water of a lagoon. No one is allowed to kill any of the animals that live here in this small expanse of water nestling between the mangroves and the Atlantic Ocean. All of the fishes you see in the water there, they have all the people that are in the community. It is a sacred space to residents, explains Alfonso Dennis, the town's chairperson. If you kill one of that fish, somebody in the community will be affected. In West Africa, many communities have set aside sacred spaces like these to be protected at all costs. It is a relationship with nature that has been handed down generation to generation. You have to be protected. We have to protect the forest, Borbor Kelly tells me, so I protect it to prevent damage. We cannot let anyone spoil it. Borba Kelly is a guardian of this stretch of forest. Together we walk along the edge of the trees, forbidden from stepping into the shade of the nearby tree canopy. Liberia is home to half of the remaining rainforest in West Africa, but in 2021 it lost over 100,000 hectares of natural forest due to deforestation, according to a report by the Global Forest Watch. For more than 40 years, Kelly has ensured that no trees have been cut down in this space. It is also a space where community justice is administered. The initiated enter the area and discuss local conflicts until a resolution is found. If somebody actually could then in you, if in someone the, has a problem home, in the home, he says, this uh, is where we bring them where we to make us them. understand their case and take control of the problem. Further down the road on the edges of a sacred forest, Anthony Gardria hacks a machete into palm trees as he clears a space for his pineapple farm. Despite his desire to expand his crops, he does not dare to chop down any trees in the sacred area. As Borbor Kelly explains, the relationship with nature is about finding a balance. The love of the human side. The love of humanity and the love of the forest are both possible, he tells me. We love both sides, but we cannot pick one side and then drop the other side. Nearby, a special gravesite is marked for those who have protected the forest before Kelly. Vines grow over the blue-green headstones. When the time comes, I will be buried there, he says, and the next generation of leaders will protect these same trees, he hopes. Ricky Shryock for NPR, Barconi, Liberia. On his latest album, Mood Swings, the platinum-selling artist Vito sings about a man who's flattering, passionate, and all about indulging his woman. Let's have a one-on-one. That was You and Me from Vito's six full-length album, Mood Swings, and he joins us now from Atlanta. Vito, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for having me. How you feeling? I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm glad to be talking to you now. I'm, You know, I'm just going to say it. You know, R&B can be very sexy music. It could be other <laughs> stuff, too. Right, but right. in this album, 
it's a lot of songs that I will call, you know, kind of bedroom R&B. Yeah, you know what absolutely. I'm saying? It's like, get, get with your man, get with your partner, get with whoever, and have a have a nice time. So in a way that's safe for radio, tell us about why you like making that kind of music. Oh, man, well, it's, it's self-explanatory. I think that um, that's how we all got here. I think it's a, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a soul tie, of course. And, you know, it's, it's just sexy, man. I, you know, people like feeling sexy, you know, women like to, you know, get dressed and feel sexy while they're doing it. And I think that was something that I wanted to like, give the ladies. And that's what Mood Swings did. What do you think makes a Vito song? And like, as an example, because we want to hear a little bit of celebrate. And then I want you to tell me like, what makes this a Vito song? Tonight I want to celebrate. Deserve your own award. Diamonds and some gold champagne for everything you've been working for. What makes it a Vito song is just, you know, the sheer appreciation, the love, and the emotion that goes into it. And I think that um everybody should be celebrated. And I think celebrate is that song that you can celebrate whomever to. And celebrate is is 100% a Vito song. Because one thing I'm gonna do. So I'm gonna give my women some some encouragement, you know. I'm gonna get them, I'm gonna get them their flowers. <laughs> well, that's the thing. This album is called Mood Swings, mm-hmm. and it seems like it's it's different kind of characters mm-hmm. in each song because you got the songs where you celebrating the women, right. you you with them, you know, you there for them. But then you got some other songs where you like, I'm just here for a good time. Right. Like I'm just trying to have fun. So when you're singing, are you the player? Are you the long-term person? How do you think about that when you approach your songs? In some cases, you know, I have to put myself in a, in a realm of being a player to like, to basically, you know, get that emotion across. But honestly, I'm a long-term thing. I like to create music that I feel people will relate to. That's why, you know, you got the songs on there, you know, DAF, which is explicit, mm-hmm. but it's like, mm-hmm. it's fun, you know, it's fun. And that's, that's, that's where I, I had to put myself into the, the player aspect of it. So it's like, all right, <laughs> you know, maybe we should start charging. Y'all charge us, you know? <laughs> I'm so proud of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. DAF is a song we can't play it on the radio because it's a little explicit, but you know, you do talk about getting a woman to buy you a PS5. Mm-hmm. Has a woman ever bought you a PS5? Or what's the most expensive gift a woman has ever bought you? Yes, I, I, a woman has bought me a PS5. It's downstairs <laughs> in my room right now. <laughs> you you say, so you got it right I now? I got it right now, yeah. I'm probably going to play after this, but I don't think it, I would call it a gift. I, I would say like a celebration. I think my celebration um, for my 28th birthday, I think we spent like $70,000 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And who did that? Did your mama do that? Or this was your, nah, this your, was, your girl? This was my girl, my fiance, yeah. <laughs> That's love. Yeah, that is real love. For sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, your your very smooth voice really shines on these tracks. I want to play a bit from another song that I really like, Soul. Forgive me if I get too sentimental. Some things in my life have been instrumental to me. I know I'm hard to love, but if you do, can you promise? Hold on to me, never let go. Broken, but you give me hope, babe. Show me, show me you can love me slow. You know, and I should mention, since this is NPR, you did a Tiny Desk concert yeah. last year with Usher. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Usher called you and singer Eric Bellinger, who was also there, 
two of the most incredible voices of this time. Yeah. This is what he said. We got it on tape. That's huge coming from Usher. Absolutely. Like, what was it like hearing that? Oh man, it was it was amazing. It just really solidified that man, you're on the right path. Great things take time, but until then, share my light. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's amazing. I do want to get back to the album, and you have a lot of songs, like I said, that are about you know loving somebody, celebrating somebody, but then you talk about you know some toxic mm -hmm. relationships, like on somebody else. And here's a little bit of that. I don't know what happened to you. You used to be Malibu now. I can't even sleep no more. You ain't even a freak no more. I can't wake up and repeat no more. It can be you or somebody else. Yeah. Who do you think you are? This ain't good for my health. I can do better by myself. I'ma be good with somebody else. Who do you think you are? I do think this will be an anthem because, you know, we quick to say, I could do bad all by oh, myself. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't need this. I could do bad all by myself. I mean, I know you're in a happy relationship now, but, like, have you been in those types of situations? And, like, how do you move on from them? Yeah, absolutely, I have. You know, a lot of people think that, man, you know, once you get the girl or once you get the guy, you got them. Been in a relationship and, been, you know, it's, it's work. And, um, you know, oftentimes we get comfortable. I'm guilty of getting comfortable, you know, and my fiance is guilty of being comfortable. Even in the past relationship, you got comfortable, move on. I think I, my advice for people, when you move on from someone, you have to find another distraction. Is that finding another person though? Cause they always say get under somebody yeah, else. Whatever, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I feel like, you know, you whatever your distraction is, let it be that. We've almost covered the entire emotional spectrum on this album, but I want to end with my favorite, favorite, favorite song, Forever. Let's make it forever, girl. Not just for this moment. I'll be yours forever, girl. Say yes and we can own it. You sing about finding love after pain. Mm -hmm. So, like, what kind of message do you have for those who are still looking for love, but struggling? You know, I would say, don't look for love. I think what you should focus on is being happy. You have to be in a happy place, and you have to have a certain aura around you to attract that. Stop putting so much emphasis on actually going out and finding love and just focus on being happy. Love yourself. If you're single now, I promise you, once you're happy, you're going to start running into people that just make you smile, make your day light up, focus on being happy. And the love will find you. That is beautiful. And the love for yourself is a forever love. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But thank you so much. That was Vito. His latest album, Mood Swings, is out now. Vito, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you, Aisha. I appreciate it. Thank you. I don't mind being used as a place to escape to. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. B.J. Luderman writes our theme music. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information 
at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Don Foot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project at House or donfoot.com. Beauty on time. And Welch and Forbes, over 100 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. WelchForbes.com. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. We don't stand for excessive use of force in the city of Memphis, and we damn sure don't stand for beating someone down and murdering them in the streets of Memphis, Tennessee. Videos of police officers fatally beating Tyree Nichols have rocked the country. We hear from those in Memphis grieving and talk about the collective trauma of repeatedly witnessing these violent encounters. And the Biden administration is taking a tougher approach at the southern border. Find out more. It's Sunday, January 29th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. More protests this weekend in Memphis and other cities around the country following the release of video showing the police beating that led to the death of Tyree Nichols. Police are being praised for making the video public. But Katie Reardon of member station WKNO says the release has also led to unanswered questions. Law enforcement are being credited for moving quickly with charges for the officers and releasing these graphic videos. But there are also a lot of other questions about what went on behind the scenes. For instance, people are asking why the sheriff's office may not have known until last night that some of their officers were there that night. Also, there are questions about two fire department employees who are also under investigation. We're still sorting through the footage, but it appears that two first responders did not take appropriate action with Nichols, who was clearly in distress. And there's also the matter of this special unit that these officers belong to. The team has now been deactivated, and the police chief has called for an independent review. Police in Baltimore looking for suspects in a shooting last night that left one person dead and injured four others, including a woman in a car with two children. The woman and a two-year-old boy were shot a six-year-old 
was critically injured when the car crashed. A Lunar New Year parade in Oakland, California today has taken on new significance following the deadly mass shootings in Monterey Park and in Half Moon Bay. From member station KQED, Sarah Kaiser reports. The parade is the first of its kind in decades in Oakland. It's meant to bring new energy to the city's small Chinatown. But the recent deadly shootings have frightened many in the community. Stuart Chen is board president of Oakland's Chinatown Improvement Council. I think this is important for us to show the rest of the, the Bay Area and the community and the world that we're not afraid. Uh, fear is something that's not going to hold us back. Chen says organizers have hired off-duty police and private security and are using volunteers for crowd control to help keep everyone safe. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Geyser. Iran says three drones have targeted a defense facility in the central province of Isfahan. NPR's Ayat Batrari reports. Iran says defense systems in place blew up two of the drones and that the third drone was downed over a military equipment manufacturing facility in Isfahan. A statement from the defense ministry carried on the state-run news agency says the attack Saturday night caused only slight damage to the roof of the building. No further details were given and there was no immediate claim of responsibility. Iran, however, has been targeted by suspected Israeli drone strikes in the past. Meanwhile, as attempts to revive Iran's nuclear deal remain stalled, the U.N. Atomic Watchdog Agency says it believes Iran is increasing its stockpile of highly enriched uranium. Aya Batrawi, NPR News, Dubai. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. After the brutal beating death of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police, a local researcher is reflecting on the traumatic impact on the black community. Harvard Medical School assistant professor Dr. Alicia Moreland-Capuia tells NPR about what researchers call the superwoman phenomenon endured by black women. In the context of microaggressions, macroaggressions, discrimination, unsafe work conditions, unsafe environments and community, They've been able to be cognitively intact, meaning you're able to complete cognitive tasks and get the work done, but it comes at the expense of overall physical and mental health. You can hear more from Dr. Moreland Capuia just ahead on Weekend Edition. Woburn teachers are meeting with school district and city officials this hour to try and reach a contract agreement. The Woburn Teachers Association will go on strike tomorrow if the two sides cannot reach an agreement today. Union members say talks with the city are stalled over disagreements about compensation and class sizes. School and city officials say striking is illegal and also disruptive to students and families. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and Police Commissioner Michael Cox are celebrating Lunar New Year today. They're in Chinatown this morning to attend the Lion Dance Parade. The event is just getting underway in Phillips Square. Parking restrictions are in place because of the Chinese New Year celebration. These restrictions affect the area around Phillips Square in Chinatown, including parts of Washington Street, Essex Street, Harrison Ave, and Neyland Street. On the MBTA, Green Line D branch riders should allow themselves some extra travel time today. Shuttles are replacing trains between Riverside and Reservoir until about noon because of tree work. 
In sports this afternoon, the Bruins are away against the Hurricanes. It is 42 degrees in Boston with clouds today and highs reaching the low 50s. Lows overnight dropping to the upper 30s. Then a partly sunny Monday. Tomorrow's highs in the mid 40s. Tuesday should be partly sunny and highs in the mid 30s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today. For a second day, protesters took to the streets of Memphis on Saturday as residents grappled with seeing disturbing video of a violent police attack on black motorist Tyree Nichols. Five former officers who are also black are charged with second-degree murder and other crimes. Some say the brutal beating is part of a long-time pattern stemming from a rotten culture within the Memphis police force. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. Dozens of protesters showed up Saturday outside police headquarters to call out what they say is an out-of-control police culture that uses excessive force in black and brown communities. City Council Vice Chairman J.B. Smiley Jr. told the group that the council is ready to take up several ordinances to make sure this never happens again. Memphis has an opportunity to set the standard on how to respond to actions like this. We don't stand for police brutality in the city of Memphis. We don't stand for excessive use of force in the city of Memphis. And we damn sure don't stand for beating someone down and murdering them in the streets of Memphis, Tennessee. While five former policemen are charged, the video shows other officials at the scene. Two sheriff's deputies and two members of the fire department have been removed from duty and are under investigation. Smiley says they should all be held to account. We demand that each and every officer, every sheriff department officer, every EMT involved be immediately terminated. The union that represents officers, the Memphis Police Association, issued a statement Friday night offering condolences to the Nichols family and saying it, quote, never condones the mistreatment of any citizen nor any abuse of power. Nichols' death at the hands of law enforcement has people here reflecting on other racial justice touch points in America, like George Floyd's murder but it also brings up painful moments in the history of Memphis. Shalonda Williams joined peaceful protests carrying a handmade sign that said, Justice for Tyree Nichols with the slogan, I am a man written on two hands pasted to the poster board. That was the slogan for the striking sanitation workers that the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. came to Memphis to support when he was assassinated here in 1968. Williams has her own family history with police violence. Forty years ago, my father was uh, murdered by police in Shannon Street in Memphis, Tennessee. So I'm here 40 years later, standing with Tyree. 
Her father, David Lee Jordan, was one of eight people killed in a controversial police standoff during a hostage situation in 1983. The FBI cleared officers of any wrongdoing at the time. Williams says seeing Nichols' brutal killing has been hard. It's almost like a trigger. It's almost like uh, uh, history kind of repeating itself, you know. Uh, but still here, still being positive, still uh, praying for positive results and that uh, people that do this, uh, regardless of who they are, they're held accountable for it. There's an emotional toll to pay witnessing the video, says Ekpe Abioto. That's something you cannot unsee. Abioto is a musician who teaches African history and culture and has been playing traditional African instruments at memorial services for Tyree Nichols. He's worried especially about protecting children from being traumatized by seeing the brutal beating. And then also the collective trauma for older members of the community who have been through this before. In 1971, there was a young black teenager by the name of uh, Elton Hayes who was killed at a traffic stop by nine white police officers. It, all that comes back to me because I remember that. I was alive at that time. I was, I was 10 years old when Dr. King was killed and this, this whole vibration feels the same way. It's a culture that needs to change, he says. But will it change? It's hard to say. Activists are pressing for new policies they say could prompt a cultural shift in the police force, ending pretextual traffic stops, for instance, and doing away with special task forces, like the Scorpion unit involved here, that send teams of officers into high-crime neighborhoods. Saturday, the Memphis Police Department permanently disbanded the Scorpion unit. Other task forces are under review. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Memphis. Witnessing the repeated death of and violence towards black people on video is a horrific event in and of itself. For black people watching, it can have traumatizing physical and mental effects. I wanted to know why it's so important to hold space for this trauma in the black community. So we called on Dr. Alicia Moreland Capquia. She's an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and an expert in trauma medicine, and she joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is not a, a conversation that any of us really want to have. It's very difficult. But you know, it is important. We're we're bombarded with these brutal images of black people dying. And it feels like collective trauma for black people. Is that an accurate way to think about this? Yeah, I want to step back just a little before even hopping into a collective trauma. And I want to talk about something even more basic, a basic requirement that all of us need. And that is this idea and this theme of safety. What we know is that all human beings require safety in order to be able to thrive and really to exist. And it's the one thing that is oftentimes breached. As I was thinking about this and many other community acts of violence that have happening, and it seems continuous, this idea that safety is ever elusive and it is something that most feel like they are not able to hold tightly to, 
there are multiple models in social science that basically help us understand that this safety requirement, how critical it is, and when it's non-existent, how it creates a lot of chaos, uncertainty, depression, anxiety, even violence in some situations. I hear you, but at, you know, as, as you well know, we have had these conversations so much before, and I know that it certainly does feel unsustainable to live in a state of 24-7 fear, but like, how are Black people surviving then? How do we go and carry on? Such a good question. And I can tell you that many, many folks are hanging on by a thread. There was a, a recent study that came out and it was in relationship to what some would refer to as the superwoman phenomenon. And this study essentially cited what many of us know to be true. While many Black women and Black people have found a way to survive, which by the way, let me add that survival is a low bar. What that means is that in the context of microaggressions, macroaggressions, discrimination, unsafe work conditions, unsafe environments and community, that they've been able to be cognitively intact, meaning you're able to complete cognitive tasks and get the work done, but it comes at the expense of overall physical and mental health. So while folks may look good on the outside or look like they're performing, on the inside, th there's a much different story. And so what you get to is shorter lifespan or even less sort of quality of life. When you talked about that superwoman issue, to me what that sounded like is what I hear in church very often is mm -hmm. I don't look like what I've been through. Come on, but but but, we, but you- But, but, you, but, but we, you. it's inside. Yes. And so it's like, on an individual level, how can people figure out how to cope with the trauma that they feel, with the trauma responses? What are some tactics that an individual can take to deal sure. and to cope? So there's a few. I One is if you have the time, the patience, and the space, mindfulness and, and meditation, really taking some time just to do some breathing, be mindful, be quiet, and just be present with oneself and feel all the feelings. You don't have to tamper anything down. It's just being aware of that and, and breathing. The second that I oftentimes refer to is everybody deserves support. I suggest that folks find a counselor, a therapist, a neutral party. And for those who have a faith, that it's important to be connected in that way. Those who can find solace in nature to do that. And so there are multiple ways to get involved. My goal is never to tell people how they have to feel or even how they have to heal. But I do believe that those of us who want to see healing happen, we have to be willing to create the conditions. So there are multiple ways. We do know that folks feel better when they can connect and they can process in the way that they feel comfortable, absent of judgment. That was Dr. Alicia Moreland-Capuia. She's the founder and director of the Institute for Trauma-Informed Systems Change at McLean Harvard. Thank you so much for joining us under difficult circumstances for all of us, but I thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Absolutely, thank you for having me. And to the extent that folks can, please be well. And we appreciate you being with us this morning. In the next hour of Weekend Edition, we will remember the life of Tyree Nichols. The 29-year-old son and father took photos of cities and sunsets, 
worked at FedEx, and was once a teenager who just wanted to stay out until it got dark, trying to land his skateboarding tricks. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Legal sports betting begins this week at casinos in Massachusetts. Coming up on Weekend Edition Sunday, we'll bring you our conversation with UMass Amherst gambling researcher. It's 40 degrees at 1018. Mostly cloudy today. Highs in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The police chief in Memphis, Tennessee, has disbanded the department's specialized Scorpion unit following the release of body cam video showing the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols. The officers involved were Scorpion members. Police in Baltimore are looking for suspects in a shooting last night that left one person dead and injured four others, including a woman in a car with two children. The woman and a two-year-old boy were shot. A six-year-old was critically injured when the car crashed. And the winner of today's NFL games will play in the Super Bowl in two weeks. San Francisco is playing Philadelphia for the NFC title. And then Kansas City plays Cincinnati for the AFC championship. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. DataIKU.com. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre K 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is Week in Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. After years of record apprehensions at the U.S.-Mexico border, the Biden administration is trying a tougher approach. And while there's been a lot of criticism of this approach, immigration authorities say it's working so far. That's according to preliminary data released last week, which show a sharp decline in the number of migrants crossing into the U.S. illegally in recent weeks. We're going to take a closer look now at what's happening on both sides of the border with NPR's Ada Peralta, who is based in Mexico City. Hey, Ada. Hey, Aisha. And NPR's Joel Rose, who covers immigration, is here with me in D.C. Hi, Joel. Hi. Okay, so, Joel, let's start with you. It's been a few weeks since the administration announced these new enforcement measures. Can you walk us through what they are? 
Sure. These are new restrictions for migrants coming from Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, and Venezuela, who made up a large and growing share of the migrants who've been crossing in recent months. The administration announced earlier this month that it would begin rapidly expelling these migrants under the pandemic restrictions known as Title 42, which had been difficult because it was impossible before now to send them back to their home countries, and Mexico had refused to take them either. At the same time, the administration announced a legal pathway that allows up to 30,000 migrants a month from those four countries to enter the U.S. temporarily under a process known as parole. And that allows them to live and work in the U.S. legally for two years. But this new process is only open to migrants who have a financial sponsor in the U.S. And crucially, they also have to apply from abroad without crossing the border illegally. Ader, uh, you've been talking to migrants trying to make their way across Mexico and Central America. How does this policy look to them? It's left them in limbo. Um, a lot of them have decided to stay here in Mexico. Um, so they make these huge lines uh, at immigration offices. And, and recently I went to talk to a few of them. Um, they were sleeping outside waiting for a work permit uh, because they say that all these new requirements make it impossible to get to the U.S. Um, and it's not necessarily the big things like the sponsors uh, that Joel mentioned. For a lot of them, it's that they don't have a passport. They left home in a hurry uh, or they've gotten wet or destroyed along the way and it takes hundreds of dollars to replace them. In Haiti, uh, since the new requirements went into place, the price of a passport doubled. Um, And the immigrants I was talking to here in Mexico City uh, told me that one of their friends, Kelvin Jimenez, was lucky because he had uh, this raggedy passport. But he laughed and said that he couldn't even apply even if he had a passport. Let's listen. So he said um, that he has a passport, but no sponsor. Uh, But he says they've gotten used to the hardship and they've gotten used to sleeping on the streets. A lot of the the migrants I spoke to here over the past few months described themselves as this kind of floating society, that they're moving through the jungle from city to city, and they feel that no one really is willing to offer them refuge. Mm. Joel, we're we're hearing what what Ader is reporting, but we said at the top that immigration authorities think these policies are working. So what is that based on? Yeah, immigration authorities say they are having a significant effect on the number of illegal crossings. And authorities did release some data this week that backs up that claim. They say the number of migrants from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela apprehended at the border has plummeted more than 90 percent in recent weeks compared to December. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says that is proof that this new approach is working. We should note it is very unusual for immigration authorities to publicly release preliminary data about the border before the month is over. Which I think shows a couple of things. The administration, for one, really wants to show a drop in illegal border crossings. And two, they seem to be worried about a lawsuit that was filed last week by a group of 20 states led by Texas. Uh, It was filed on Tuesday in federal court in South Texas. And they're seeking to block the new parole program for migrants from these four countries. They say the Biden administration is overstepping its authority here by basically creating a new visa program without authorization from Congress. The states argue that parole is supposed to be exceptionally limited and only on a case-by-case basis, and that the Biden administration is abusing that power by letting in potentially hundreds of thousands of migrants. So, Ada, uh, let's talk about the role of Mexico in all of this. Why is the government there going along with these new enforcement policies? 
I mean, on, on the surface, what they say is that they're trying to make migrants safer. They say that these policies take migrants out of the hands of human smugglers. But this is also about pragmatism. Mexico is getting more temporary worker visas for their citizens. And in the end, Mexico wants fewer Latin Americans leaving their countries so they don't end up here. Um, what immigrants' rights activists tell you is that these policies discourage migration, and that's exactly what the United States and Mexico want. There seems to be a real shift by the Biden administration toward tougher enforcement at the border. But how is that sitting with immigrant advocates and, and with Democrats? They're mad. They say the President Biden campaigned against some of the very Trump administration immigration policies that his administration is now emulating. Um, more than 70 Democrats signed a letter this week calling on the White House to reconsider some of these new enforcement measures. Um, those who signed that want the administration to stop expelling migrants under Title 42. They also want the Biden administration to drop plans for sharp new limits on asylum for migrants who cross the border illegally or after passing through another country without seeking protection there. Here's Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey last week. Anyone who tells you that the only way to secure our border is to punish asylum seekers is lying. It's why we are appalled to see President Biden replicate President Trump's immigration strategy. The Biden administration disputes that it's, it's replicating anything, but immigrant advocates do see these policies as basically identical and say they will go to court to block this proposed asylum rule if they have to. That's NPR's Joel Rose in Washington, D.C., and Ada Peralta in Mexico City. Thank you both for your reporting. You're welcome. Thank you, Aisha. More than a decade ago, the author Marina Levitska wrote a delightful novel, A Short History of Tractors in Ukrainian. It led our correspondent Dia Hadid down a rabbit hole, and she brings to you A Short History of Belarusian Tractors in Pakistan. There's a Pakistani love song that celebrates a pretty woman and the cherry red tractors that are a fixture of rural life here. The singer croons about a rosy tractor that he uses to plow a field before he meets his beloved. That Rusi Traktor is actually from Belarus. It's a country that neighbours Russia, and Belarus has been a global powerhouse of tractor production since Soviet days. Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko even gave Russia's Vladimir Putin a tractor for his 70th birthday. Belarus, of course, is allied with Russia in its invasion of neighbouring Ukraine. But these tractors reached Pakistan during an earlier quest for empire. On December 24, 1979, the Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan. As their war the effort bogged down, Soviet, Soviet forces used Belarusian tractors because they can haul just about anything. The legend of these powerful tractors spread and farmers in neighbouring Pakistan began clamouring for them. So smugglers snuck them in, even bringing spare parts on donkey cart and camelback. More than four decades on, they're a fixture in Pakistan's fields and its culture. Before they hit the road or the field, many are given a uniquely Pakistani makeover. In roadside stalls in the market town of Mandi Bahauddin, in a rural part of Pakistan's Punjab province, you can see the transformation from tractor to eye-popping art piece. So I can see a big, shiny, red 
tractor that has Belarus emblazoned on the side. There's bright red poles that have been added to the front. There's fluoro green chains that have been attached to the sides. Colourful ribbons tied to the gear sticks, which are also wrapped in gold. The windows are being painted with jars filled with peacock feathers. The back has been decked out with multicoloured lights. And I can see a labourer on this side is just sploshed in paint. And here's the one making all these really colourful decorations on the tractor. Salam alaikum. The painter's name is Abdul Qadir. He's adding even more detail on the tractor's side. The artwork is complicated, but he says his customer's brief is simple. The owner told me he wants this tractor to be the most beautiful in town. My customers like to have beautiful things. They like to show off. There's lots of showing off. In a neighbouring stall, a smithy welds together a giant crown that will adorn the top of another tractor. To see these tractors in action, we head to nearby fields and meet farmhand Pervez Iqbal. He's driving a Belarusian tractor adorned with jangly bells. He invites me in for a ride. Thank you. I perch on an old ammo box that serves as an extra seat. Barud, ammunition box, eh? Iqbal pads it with a jacket. I don't understand why until he starts ploughing up a small field and we bounce so hard I cling to a door handle so I'm not flung against the windscreen. Iqbal beams with pride. Can the other tractors do this job? This tractor is powerful. No other tractor compares. Down the road, another Belarusian tractor is hitched to a trailer. One man drives it into a sugarcane field. Farmhands holler at him to stop once he's positioned it near freshly cut stalks. The men haul the unwieldy large sugarcane stalks into the trailer to the beat of music blasting from loudspeakers rigged to the tractor. Nearby, landowner Wasim Beg sips chai and watches the men work. He says his Belarusian tractor makes it possible to sell sugarcane, a lucrative cash crop in these parts. The tractor's rule is crucial. It's the backbone. If it's not there, the land can't be prepared for farming. So this dressed-up Soviet tractor has turned Beg into a committed capitalist. It's made him rich. And he's not alone. We head to a field behind a pokey village where local horse races are on. Landowners flaunt their wealth. The richest spectators sit on woven daybeds and sip chai. They're protected by black-clad men wielding assault rifles. Musicians play tunes around them, hoping for tips. Riders dressed in baggy pants and shirts, crisp waistcoats and turbans trot down a field as a man announces their names on a loudspeaker. And the races begin. Many of these riders are landowners or their sons, their fortunes built on the backs of those Belarusian tractors. 
like Chaudhry Zahur, he's 25. His family owns 20 acres of land, which they plant with sugarcane, harvested with their Belarusian tractor. He boasts that his riding team have won two rounds of races so far. They all wear matching sky blue vests and turbans. Zahura's horse is also decked out, draped with ornate silver necklaces, studded with blue stones and jangly bells, wrapped around its neck. So I asked my colleague Abdul Sattar to translate. Is his tractor as decorated as his horse? Even more decorated than the horse. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Mandi Bahauddin, Pakistan. Artists will often say that they rely on audience rapport when they perform live shows. But how different is that vibe when the audience is incarcerated? Singer-songwriter Matt Butler has performed over 150 shows in prisons and has written a stage show about his experiences called Reckless Son. Hear that conversation tomorrow on Morning Edition. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Thanks for listening to Weekend Edition Sunday on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Starting Tuesday morning at the state's three casinos, people will be able to legally bet on sports. Gamblers also will be able to place bets on other events, such as the Academy Awards and competitive eating contests. UMass Amherst School of Public Health and Health Sciences professor Rachel Volberg researches the social issues created by gambling for the Massachusetts Gaming Commission. She says she thinks the negative impact of sports gambling is likely to be modest. There are some vulnerable groups that we believe are more likely to get into trouble than others. We think the impacts are going to be moderate, but there are some groups that we think will be vulnerable because of their lack of experience with gambling or because they're being targeted very specifically by the sports betting operators in an effort to grow the market. So adolescents, young adults, women, immigrants, college athletes, and people who are already in recovery from a gambling problem. In terms of risk, what is the difference between sports gambling and other kinds of gambling? The most risky form of gambling is electronic gambling machines, slot machines. That type of gambling, far and away, is the riskiest. So it's not so much that sports betting is a risky form of gambling by itself. But where it really does make a difference is someone is already a lottery player, already a regular casino player, may play gambling games on their phone, and then adds sports betting to that mix. That is definitely a cause for concern. What do we mean when we say risk? Obviously, it starts with money, but you know it can very quickly move out into other realms of a person's life. So from the research perspective, we distinguish between individual harms, which can include mental health issues, depression or anxiety, as well as physical experiences of stress. 
someone who's developing a, an issue with their gambling will spend more and more time gambling and less and less time with their friends and family. And so that affects their relationships in, in many different ways. And then there's harms to the community, which have to do not just with financial issues that an individual may cause um, in order to get money to gamble, but could also affect their ability to be effective in school or at work, all the way out to committing crimes to get money to gamble through experiences of depression so severe that uh, they will attempt or or be able to commit suicide. With sports gambling, now that the landscape is changing, ads for gambling are actually woven into the fan experience of sports, and some of the actual content of sports coverage also includes gambling references and information. And I'm wondering how you think that might affect the decision-making process of people when they are thinking about gambling on sports. From a sociological point of view, there is the issue of normalization with the expansion in advertising and with the penetration of gambling language into sports broadcasting, it normalizes the gambling aspect. And so that makes it easier for people to say, well, you know, everybody's doing it, so I'll give it a try as well. The other concern is that when people do decide to gamble, you know, or to bet on sports, their assumption, because it's legal and because it's being advertised and because everybody's talking about it, their assumption is that it's being regulated effectively. And while that is certainly the case, for the most part, in Massachusetts, we're going to have legalized sports betting, but the illegal operators will continue to operate. There's no guarantee that people will be affected by the normalization and then only go with the legal operator. They may just go with an operator from somewhere outside of Massachusetts that's not being regulated. Rachel Volberg of UMass Amherst researches social issues connected to gambling. Legal mobile sports betting is expected to begin in Massachusetts in March. You can reach the state's Problem Gambling Helpline at 1-800-327-5050. That's 1-800-327-5050 to call the Problem Gambling Helpline. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Some Israeli officials have furiously denounced the Netflix film Thara, saying it unfairly maligns those who fought for independence. Director Dahrin Salam says she's just sharing the Palestinian perspective through one girl's eyes. I wanted to make a film about a girl who was deprived from her childhood and from her dreams, from her life, from everything. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. 
and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hi there, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from Peter Collins of Ann Arbor, Michigan. I said, take a word that's in the name of several tourist attractions in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., rearrange the letters in that word to spell the names of two other nations' capitals. What are they? And that word is memorial, and you can rearrange those letters to make Lima and Rome. Mm, that, that, now that you lay it out like that, I can see it. It seems so simple. <laughs> it seems so simple. We received more than 1,900 correct entries. Our puzzle winner for this week is Bern Craftsick of Northboro, Massachusetts. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear this is not your first time winning. You won before? Yep, back in uh, 1996, and it was sort of a bizarre puzzle. I'd, my recollection is that nobody actually got the intended answer, but I had, I don't know what kind of answer, but it, it worked. Oh, okay. I've seen that happen before. Mm -hmm. So no one got the correct answer, but you got the answer that like Will liked the best. Something like that. <laughs> so what do you do when you're not playing the puzzle and you're too busy to submit entries to, to get on air. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm retired. Um, spent a lot of time walking my dog. I'm kind of a news junkie. And I've got two grandsons who delight in getting new video games that they can play with me that I haven't played. Oh! <laughs> and beating me. What are their favorite games? Uh, they're into a lot of the um Xbox Marvel stuff. Oh, yes. And yeah. those, and yeah. <laughs> My son is nine, so we are very into that as well. So if you can play those games, then I know you are ready to play the puzzle, right? Well, that's that's not a good recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to say you're ready. I think, I, I guess so. <laughs> okay, well, take it away, Will. All right, Bern and Aisha. If you add two letters to goat, G-O-A-T, and rearrange the result, you get another animal, a gooty, A-G-O-U-T-I. It's a tropical rodent. I'm going to name some other animals. For each one, add two letters and scramble to name another animal. Okay. And here's number one, a bear, B-E-A-R, and add a D and a G. Um, what animal do you get? D and a G. Badger. Badger is correct. Seal, S-E-A-L, and add an E and a W. Uh, and a W. Um, weasel. Weasel is correct. Colt, C-O-L-T, add an E and an O. Um, e and an O. Colt. Uh, hmm. Hmm, I'm thinking too. Yeah. <laughs> what? Starts with an O. But it starts with an O. Okay. Ocelot? Ocelot is correct. Cobra, C-O-B-R-A, add an I and a U. Hmm. I'm a U. It's a big animal. Ooh. Has, has antlers. Oh. Uh, oh, a caribou. 
caribou is right. Try this one. Angora, A-N-G-O-R-A, plus K and O. A and O. Angora. Um, A and O. Angora. And here's a very helpful hint. It's an animal down under. Oh, kangaroo. Kangaroo is it. Peahen, that's P-E-A-H-E-N, plus L and T. This is the biggest answer in the puzzle. Oh. <laughs> um, elephant, of course. Elephant is it. And here's your last one. A mallard, M-A-L-L-A-R-D. Add an I and an O. Armadillo. Armadillo, no hint needed. Yes, oh my goodness. It's hard to do these word scrambles, but you did a great job. How do you feel? Relieved. <laughs> Is that how you felt last time, too? Well, last time it went fairly well. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't take a long time because it takes the same amount of time. I'll be, I'll be pushing 100. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, we'll get you back on before then. I mean, can't make promises, but hopefully. Thank you. <laughs> so for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Burn, what member station do you listen to? Listen to WBUR in Boston. That's Burn Krafsig of Northborough, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thank you for having me. So, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Samuel Mace of Smyrna, Delaware. Name a fruit in one word, drop the last two letters, and the remaining letters can be rearranged to name two other fruits. What are they? So again, a fruit in one word, drop the last two letters, and the remaining letters can be rearranged to name two other fruits. What fruits are they? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, February 2nd at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. What happens when you go past Earth's crust to the ooey-gooey center? Well, it's actually not ooey-gooey at all. It's a solid core, and a new study from scientists in China says the core has actually slowed its rotation. It's just the latest attempt to describe what's going on at the very center of the planet, a part of the world, it turns out, we don't know a whole lot about. John Vidali teaches earth sciences at the University of Southern California and has been studying the earth's core. Professor Vidali, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. I guess to, to start off with, key to this Chinese study and many of the recent studies of the core is that it spins independently of the Earth's other layers. So how does it do that, and, and how recently did scientists figure that out? Well, it, it happens because the Earth actually is kind of gooey. Um, the, the core has an inner core that's solid, but it also has an outer core that's uh, basically liquid iron. So there's nothing holding that solid inner core in place. And they, they noticed uh, back in the 1990s that the inner core was changing over time. And our interpretation is that it's 
spinning slightly independently of the earth above it. What methods do we use to observe it and, and how do we know what the core is made of? Well, we know what it's made of by having a rough idea how the planet formed. You know, it formed very hot back when the solar system first started and melted. And, and when you take what's out in space and do that to it, uh, the iron kind of sinks to the middle. And then we can sense it uh, by a lot of ways, but mainly seismic waves and the gravity field. Is there debate over like whether the Earth's core is moving at all, or is that mostly settled? We don't agree about much of anything. Um, we agree it could move, and there's sort of four different trains of thought at the moment. You know, three of them involve the Earth's core rotating various ways, and the fourth thinks it's just changes in the surface of the inner core. You know, for the motion, some people think it swings back and forth every 70 years. Uh, another theory has it wiggling every six years. Uh, that's my favorite. There's a third theory that says it had a burst of activity around the year 2000 that lasted a year or two, and it turned half a degree. And that fourth group thinks it's not turning at all. And you said your favorite is, did you say six years? Yeah, the, the idea of a six-year oscillation is that the Earth's core spins a little bit faster for three years and then a little bit slower for three years, and that pattern repeats, and it's because the Earth's inner core is pinned by the gravity of the uh, mantle around it. It moves about a half a degree each way, so that's just five miles or so, a very small oscillation back and forth in a rotational sense. What would be the benefit then of knowing what's going on with the core since it's so far away from us? I mean, one idea is that if we understand the Earth's core better, and you know, we don't understand it very well, we could more um, knowledgeably figure out the rest of the planets in the solar system and how their cores and magnetic fields work. So that's kind of you know, fundamental research and, you know, it is possible there are things we don't know that we should know about. That's John Vidali, professor of Earth Sciences at the University of Southern California. Professor Vidali, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. As the city of Memphis and the nation comes to terms with the brutal video of Tyree Nichols being beaten by the police, we're thinking of the systems that shape a society where young Black men and boys are often treated like criminals, no matter what they do. Earlier this week, we spoke to author Nick Brooks about his new young adult novel, Promise Boys, that explores some of those systems. The book is set in the Urban Promise Prep School, a fictional charter school in Southeast Washington, D.C. Here's Nick Brooks reading the school's anthem. We promise. We are the young men of Urban Promise Prep. We are destined for greatness. We are college-bound. We are primed for success. We are extraordinary because we work hard. We are respectful, dedicated, committed, and focused. We are our brother's keepers. We are responsible for our futures. We are the future. We promise. The school is led by the strict, no-nonsense principal, Kenneth Moore. But when he turns up dead, three boys, JB, Trey, and Ramon, are accused of his murder. Author Nick Brooks introduces us to Principal Kenneth Moore. I mean, he's a man who I think comes from the same system, you know, that he um, is trying to prepare these young men for. Um, and because of he had to be thrown in a fire, that's what he does to these young men. Because on one hand, he starts off with a really noble cause, trying to help these boys matriculate. But that cause starts to corrupt them. 
one thing that struck me about the story was these are kids in many ways they're being told that they need to be men and what it takes to be a man and they're not really being allowed to be kids especially in the school and the structure of the school um they're not even allowed to really talk mm-hmm. laugh any of that stuff why did you want to explore that in this book i kind of grew up in a household that a little bit mirrors uh, the structure of Promise Boys as far as like how discipline was drilled into these young men. And it's unfortunate because I think as black men trying to raise, they're so scorned and they, and they, and they feel so jaded by generational trauma that they feel they need to pour certain things into to young black men to help them succeed. And so Principal Moore is kind of falling into that bag, right? Where he's seeing that, oh, in order for America uh, or whiteness the patriarchy and the you know all all of these kind of buzzwords in order for them to accept you you have to be excellent you did in the in the structure of this book you use a lot of different perspectives so you have the different chapters but a lot of them are from the perspective of different Mm -hmm. characters why did you choose to tell the story in that way yeah, well, really, we, we thought it'd be, like, most cinematic, honestly. Well, two reasons. One, be most cinematic, but then, two, the mystery component. Um, I think the the multi-perspective, it really, like, lends itself to mystery really well. And then another piece of it, too, is, like, when I first came into a school, um, before you would even meet the kids, sometimes you would meet all of these other people, like, whether it were community members or other teachers, you would have, like, all of these different perspectives about who that kid was. <laughs> and so for me, I always kind of just met students for who they were. So going back to the multiple perspective thing, it was like, you know, a way to to hide the mystery. It was very cinematic, but also a way to like stimulate kind of a, a real experience. Before you even meet these young men, you're meeting all these people who have things to say about them. When you talk about kind of that tough love, that idea that um, you have to be very hard on these young boys so they don't end up in the system, that's kind of like what was happening with Trey Mm -hmm. and his uncle Mm -hmm. who he's living with, where he's getting really abused. But I mean, his uncle is is saying this is what he thought he needed to do to Mm -hmm. keep him in line, get him in check. There's this push and pull between I want to keep you alive. 100%. But then that can also be just as harmful when you're putting that type of pressure on a child. A hundred percent. There's been a lot of content like in TV and film to come out recently that takes place in and around slavery, right? And I was watching it and, you know, I was really thinking that a lot of these, these are survival techniques, right? Like, like a black man telling the, the black and trying to beat into him, hey, you got to be obedient. You got to be disciplined. That's a survival technique. And you can literally trace that all the way back because I'm sure, <laughs> you know, on a plantation or something, Mm-hmm. that was something that you felt like you had to do because you, you could not have that child step out of line or whatever, right? I think a lot of our ways that we, like, rear kids are are still survival techniques. People are still in survival mode. And so it's just one of those things that we have to break. And then not to mention the whole hyper-masculinity, you know, we also kind of talk about in the book. But again, growing up in an environment where it's a survival technique, you feel like you have to be hyper-masculine because at any given moment, you can be tested. You know what I mean? And so a lot of these toxic traits that we have it pains me because I understand it's really a re- reflection of the positions that we've been put in. The kids aren't inherently bad. The people aren't inherently bad. It really comes down to, you know, how do we change it up? Because what we've been doing hasn't been working. Mm. This is a young adult book. Um, as you said, you want kids and, and people all over the world to read this. But what do you want for, you know, the young black and brown children that will read this? What do you hope they take away from this story? 
what I'm hoping is that this hits so close to home for a lot of net that they're like, oh man, like I see myself in this book. Like I can, I have stories, like I have stories that I can tell. Um, Cause I not just don't want to inspire people to read, but I want to inspire these kids to write. You know, I really want kids to take away, like I see myself in this and I can do this. I can, I can tell a story like this. That's Nick Brooks, who is the author of Promise Boys. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Perfect. Thank you for having me. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. It is 40 degrees in Boston with some clouds today and highs in the low 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. And CB Team in Lexington, using exposure therapy to help all ages learn to overcome OCD and anxiety disorders. More at cbteam.org. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into all things considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.